Hello, this is Deb from Deb's Data Dojo, part of the Calling All Beings Podcast Network. Today, I have a very special guest, host, Jesse, who is part of MUFON and the podcast host of UFO Encounters Worldwide. Jesse has come a few times to co-host with me today, but today is especially, um, particularly special because he has invited someone from MUFON that he knows. Joseph Foster. Joseph Foster is a member of New Jersey's MUFON. As far as I understand, he is the leader of the MUFON organization in um, Monmouth County and a former member of the U.S. Coast Guard. Joseph has been um, an experiencer since the age of three. Um, he's had multiple sightings, including over his ship in the Pacific Ocean and an experience in Vietnam. He is a retired technology information program manager. Welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me, Deb. <laughs> I'm very excited to get to talk to you um, today because I am especially interested in USOs. I think they have like a special place in my heart. And I know that you know quite a bit about the USOs. Um, but before we get into all that, could you just um, tell people a little more about yourself? Okay. Well, I've, uh, as you said earlier, I was uh, four years in the Coast Guard. I was a navigator in communications on board a ship, and I was in Vietnam. I pulled a Westpac deployment. Um, after I got out, I uh, worked for the Department of Defense, the Army, and uh, did science and technology. I spent a number of weeks out in the Mojave Desert doing advanced warfighting experiments. I worked for Merrill Lynch. I ran a data center for Merrill Lynch, and we cleared the first government security for the parent company, ML & Co., since the Great Depression. So it was a historic first. I've got my Lucite uh, tint on my desk. So uh, after that, I worked for a uh, an astronaut. Again, with science and technology for MTC and BAE systems. I also ran a program, um, an IT program for AT&T. And uh, other than that, I, I do a lot of dabbling and I stick my nose probably where it shouldn't go. But I've learned a lot because of that. So I think it should go. It. I think it should. And I've learned that if you're not afraid to say something, you can meet just about anybody because people want to talk, especially yes. about this topic. They want someone to talk to about it. Um, so thank you for coming and sharing your vast knowledge. It seems like you've been doing an extensive amount of research, very heavy, serious research for a long time. Um, I guess I would like to go back to the beginning. I'm, I saw you mention that the first experience was when you were three. Um, but that experience wasn't fully explained in the video, which is, by the way, on YouTube. There's a link in the description. But <laughs> there, I didn't get to um, learn about that from the video that you did. What happened when you were three? Well, basically, it was, it was relatively straightforward. Um, I call it a crib experience because I was a little less than three. I wasn't quite three years old, but I remember vividly. Uh, being in a crib in my parents' room. Uh, at the time, we lived on a farm out in East Hampton, out in Long Island. 
And I remember being wide awake, standing in my crib. Uh, I remember the room. I remember everything about the the incident. My parents were in bed. Uh, My crib was at the base of the bed. The baseboard of my crib was next to the bed on my mother's side. And I was standing at the headboard away from the bed, uh, just standing there looking at uh, some type of creature that was hanging over my my crib railing. And uh, it it was rather hideous. It was not anything like you normally see. And, of course, I think that there might have been some childish embellishment involved, but it was so realistic that I remember every aspect of it uh, to this day. Uh, The entire thing lasted maybe 15 or 20 seconds. I don't remember laying down. I don't remember going to sleep. I don't even remember waking up the next morning. But I remember that 10 or 15 second period uh, like it was yesterday. Years later, I drew a picture of what the room looked like and Mm -hmm. ran it past my parents just to make sure. They said, yeah, that was exactly what it looked like. So I can't explain what it was, though. Okay, the creature is a, it was a, at least somewhat humanoid in shape. Uh, well, it was humanoid in the sense that it had two arms and two legs. Okay, uh, the, the head was more or less white and clown-like. It was, it was very grotesque, and okay. um, the the colors it was Technicolor. The, it was a Technicolor dream, if it was mm-hmm. a dream. So, um, but again, I can't explain exactly what it was or what it wasn't. But mm-hmm. it did take everything off because shortly thereafter, a couple of years, I had my first UFO experience. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's worth noting that there seems to be a lot of parallels between people who have multiple sightings and some kind of encounter with an entity. Um, what those entities are, we we still don't un- entirely know. I actually. I'll tell you, this is something I'm going through right now. I originally was thinking maybe extraterrestrial, but now I'm kind of going towards interdimensional. I'm going to that whole realm of things are outside of our perception that are happening right here that sometimes we catch a glimpse of. And it sounds like maybe that's what happens with you. So Yeah, like I said, it was very realistic, but it was also outside the realm of you know, what we would consider somewhat normal, whether it's a nightmare or, you know, something else. So, I think it's almost unfortunate that so much of this information has been sort of hidden from us, you know, because I think we would be better prepared to deal with it and think of it as normal if we had been honest all along about these things. So. Mm-hmm. Yes. I don't know if you guys caught it, by the way. Lou just admitted in an interview that he dealt with people who were abducted, who were involved in the ATIP program. So if there are people in the military who are now admitting that they were abducted beyond just um, Jim Sullivan, which I know Lou had interactions with him, but other people, that's a big deal. Like there's people who are being abducted and admitting it. So, yeah, this is something we really kind of need to look at a little bit more honestly so yes so um would you like to tell about your next experience when you were about five it was the one on the farm right yeah um yeah that one uh, was uh, we were still living on the farm 
Uh, my parents had aspirations of becoming farmers. Neither of them were farmers in their previous lives. When I say previous lives, be, before they met each other and at the end of World War II, uh, neither of them had any farming experience, but that's what they decided they wanted to be. My mom was a city girl, and my dad came from coal mining country. So it was, it, the options were somewhat limited to them. Uh, but that particular incident, um, they had just opened up a drive-in theater on the old Montauk Highway in the town of Bridgehampton. And uh, one night, uh, my parents took myself and my sister, who was about two years old at the time. I was about six, and she was about two. Uh, took us to the drive-in. And, of course, you know, we're sitting there. The little kids, because we couldn't see anything, we sat in the front. and parents in the back. And well, anyway, we're looking at the screen. I think the movie might have been Horrors of Dracula, of all things. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, the, the contrast between the screen and the black sky behind it, uh, it was stark. It was black and white, literally. And what happened was there was a single point of very, very bright white light that appeared about 20 degrees above the top of the screen, the drive-in uh, movie screen. And it made a rapid descent, but it was a 90 degree turns that it was making at extremely high speed. And it made three terms, a zigzag and a zig, and disappeared behind the screen. Well, the human brain can, you know, the eye can register that. And I remember it like it was yesterday. It was, it was a striking incident. But it wouldn't be explained for a number of years what I what I had seen. And of course, now we're into the realm of what they're talking about today, about how the Tic Tacs uh, fly, you know, and they bending space and time. Um, that came out about 10 or 15 years ago because there's been other people that have seen the same type of event. And uh, so, but that was another thing that just kind of added to the repertoire added to my knowledge base. Um, and I, I, I do admit I probably had a lot more uh, unexpected experiences with this than I really deserve or should have, statistically at least. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I feel like it happens to repeat a lot. And then something about it, you know, even if it's just one encounter really pulls people in just sucks yeah. them in like quicksand um so yeah I, I don't know what it is i i know that um diana pasolka calls it a calling but some people have that calling whether or not they see something and who knows you might have still been driven to investigate um what's also interesting to me about that is that a typical five-year-old kid if it had been a plane there's no way you would have remembered it so that's how much that stood out to you, because a five-year-old kid wouldn't pay no attention to something like a plane. <laughs> Unless you really liked airplanes. Yeah, and but you still... I think I always did. <laughs> I think they would just kind of blur together, though, still. But something like that, the, fa the fact that you remember, that's really interesting. It really stood out. Um, so you may have just somehow instinctively knew, known beyond the fact that it was not a plane, something was really off, like that it shouldn't have been there. 
right. or something like that. Um, by the way, did you know Preston Dennett wrote a whole book about drive-in movie theater encounters? The, the drive, uh, my drive-in yeah. theater encounter. No, really? it might be. It might be in there. Oh, for all I know, what do you think, Jesse? You think his book has that <laughs> particular <laughs> one? I don't know. A lot of different cases from drive-in movie theaters, so you never know. It might be something he's seen of your encounter and threw it really? away. You know? Yeah, well, I would. I'm gonna have to get that book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was surprised. There's a whole book. It makes me wonder what it is about the movies. Maybe they just want to come watch the movie with you. <laughs> yeah, you could have picked a better movie though. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I certainly hope that they don't judge us based on our movies, because <laughs> I've seen some movies that I'm like, I, I've, you know, I've, I've had this thought since I've been studying UFOs. Please don't judge us based on this movie. <laughs> well, you, you know, here's the interesting thing: uh, that drive-in movie theater was just built that summer, brand new, uh, and the orientation of it, uh, the screen when you're when you're watching the the movie. You're actually facing basically to the west, and about 30 miles or so beyond is Brookhaven National Lab, and it was it was a very important lab even back in the mid to early early to mid 50s. So you know, uh, again, looking at cause and effect, I, I'm always trying to see if there's some type of a linkage between things that happen, and this one here because the Brookhaven National Lab. Uh, has been involved in UFO events over the years. So it's not all that unique from that standpoint. And Long Island, especially with Camp Hero, we're about 17 miles from Camp Hero. Well, even that, what people know about Camp Hero is only scratching the surface. There's, there's so much more, especially anecdotal stories about it. So Long Island is a real hotbed, and it, it was a it was a pleasure being able to be there and observe some of these things that I did because I think there is a locale uh, component to it. Yeah, like Catalina. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they have their personality. Now, I know that you had a map marking some sightings that had been seen and doing some parallel research on that um i think that someone in that interview that where you were showing the map said it was a nids map and i wonder if anyone has done an updated map just kind of pinpointing all these hot spots um because there's a lot of people that talk about you know magnetic fields and ley lines and things like that and you have to wonder could there be something there <laughs> well as a navigator in the service Mm -hmm. I can tell you that our nautical charts, which are hydrographic office charts, um, there were areas that, you know, it said, do not go here for various yeah. reasons. You, usually, like the Devil's Sea in Japan, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, ships and planes are supposed to avoid that, not because of the paranormal necessarily, but because it's such a, a high activity place for, you know, vol volcanism, uh, mm -hmm. earthquakes you know ships and planes disappear all the time and a lot of the times not all of them but a lot of the times is because of that type of activity even to the point where a couple of years ago uh south of guam a uh, one of our nuclear submarines was moving at high speed trying to avoid being tracked by by our adversaries of course mm -hmm. and they ran into a mountain that they didn't know was there wow 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, there was serious damage was done to that sub. So, well, this, this, I will say this is, I don't want to uh, spoil Jesse's presentation too much about electromagnetic stuff, but this is an area that I know Jesse's interested in. And I noticed in reading Keel recently, which I've been reading, he's an awesome author, by the way. Um, oh, Keel? John Keel? Yeah, he, he's talking about how the paranormal may actually be more of an electromagnetic thing. And I'm kind of a fan of that theory because I think there's science behind the woo factor that people talk about. I really do. I think there's science behind a lot of this. Um, and I think we just have to figure the science out. Yeah. Uh, ghosts, everything, electromagnetic energy is, mm -hmm. you know, it's almost a common denominator because of the technology that they're using to study the phenomena. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, you de definitely. That, it's a good path to, to look down. Right. So I, I was surprised because I was reading what Keel was saying and I'm like, he really has this whole theory about how everything's electromagnetic. And that's what I've been saying. <laughs> like, so it's, I loved it. So Jesse, you have important work to do on that. Chop, chop. Let's go. Let's get this done. So when you were, when you were, um, when you were, in the service and you were you were out there on the oceans did you ever have any electromagnetic things happen to your your compasses or any any of your charts anything whatsoever? okay well, well let me tell you part of the process when you're at sea or going out to sea you have to calibrate your compasses now you use a magnetic compass uh, for the calibration purposes uh, the main compass on board my ship was a gyro compass. And there's a there's a process you, you use. That's how I became a navigator because I was very good at steering my ship. Well, anyway, what you do, you swing the ship and you compare the magnetic compass with the bearing on the the mag or the on the gyro compass. And in the area that you're working in, you have what's called variation and deviation. Those are two processes that move, move, bad word, but deviate between what true north is and what magnetic north is. And when you want to make it so that no matter where you are at sea, when you look at your gyro compass, it's giving you a bearing to true north because all of our charts were geared to true north, not necessarily magnetic north. So it, yeah, it, that that's a normal process. Whenever you Whenever you, before you set sail on any type of journey at sea, you do a compass calibration. Now it's, it's not as necessary because with GPS and everything, it takes the guesswork. As long as the GPS is working, it takes the guesswork out of uh, navigation. Uh, it's gotten so bad that they stopped teaching celestial navigation at the, uh, uh, the Naval Academy and the Coast Guard Academy. So that means the navigators of old are no longer have the skill set. They rely totally on the electronics that they have. But they found out that those electronics can go bad and that you really should maintain the knowledge of the old mariners. Absolutely. I agree with that. And I was going really old in my head when you were talking about that. I was thinking about the Vikings. They use, they actually used 
like the stone, like a crystal. It was a crystal basically to help them navigate. And I was thinking, oh yeah, yeah. So oh, you got one. <laughs> yeah. So I I think it's um it's unfortunate that uh, we are relying on electromagnetic when apparently there are areas where that's really problematic. Um, there are spots, and that's just the way it is. And I know that the Navy actually went out and mapped as much as they could um, of the magnetic fields of the Earth for that reason. And I think there's, you know, still a lot of mystery there. Like it changes that field. Well, no, absolutely, because we're getting close to a a shift in the magnetic poles. I mean, people don't realize that even the sun. We're right now. We're we're in a period of active uh, solar activity. And it's every 11 years, generally speaking. But what happens is the magnetic poles of the sun flip every 11 years or so. So the cycles that we that we take for granted, basically, are very, very critical to what happens to life here on Earth. Um, right now, the magnetic, if you look at the magnetic uh, field around the Earth, it's pretty jumbled and weak. And that means we're looking at, and it happens periodically. It's not anything new. It's not something we're causing or anything like that. It's just something that happens. Uh, is it going to be catastrophic? Mm, could be a little uncomfortable, I'll put it that way. But it's something that I think that you have to keep in mind. And especially when it comes to navigation, it's going to, the birds and the bees are going to have some problems getting adjusted to the flip of the pole because that's how they navigate you know so that magnetism is very critical yeah and i've i've heard some people go a little dark with that whole thing and say when this happens it's apocalyptic you know so i don't know i think we've gone through some flips before and we've been yeah okay. we have we have now the shift of a of the axis that's a different story and that has happened in the past already We're we're a, a you know sturdy lot. We'll be okay, <laughs> right? <laughs> Maybe our uh, interdimensional friends will help us if we need it. But you know what's funny about this is that we see this science going on with the poles and everything, with the geomagnetic changes, and at the same time, there's a group of people who are going on the more woo direction, talking about how we are going to be at a different frequency in about five years and different uh, density in about five years. And I'm like, is that coincidental or is it the same story being told a different way? <laughs> um, my guess is that there's a lot of components there. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of it's true. I mean, uh, frequencies, uh, the earth does have a frequency. Okay, uh, we're also looking now at 5G, 6G, 7G, and 8G. Those are all frequencies. And 5G, not so much, but 6G is going to be getting closer to the human brain. The frequency that, you know, the microwave frequency that the brain is tuned to is in the 6G range, what they call the 6G range. So 5G gives you the Internet of Things. Okay, so your toaster is going to talk to your coffee maker and your coffee maker is going to talk to your TV set and to, and so on and so forth. The internet of uh, the next internet that they're talking about, and this is where the transhumanism comes in. 
will be the internet of uh, humans. Okay, so the human brain, if you can bridge, we already know it's got electromagnetic capabilities. That's how it works, right? But how do you harness that and how do you use it for interpersonal communication? Well, some people are blessed with a skill, you know, whether it's uh, something that's changed in their brain, which allows them to communicate non-verbally with other people. Well, pretty soon, it may be that every human being will have that connection to the hive, whether we like it or not. I mean, this is the direction that we're heading in. And, you know, I just have to point out, a lot of people are skeptical about that, even though I speak to people all the time who have experiences with that. And I think we all pick up on things from each other already without knowing why. But... Mm -hmm. But the, 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 the funny thing about being skeptical about that is that that is exactly what we created with the Internet and the cloud, right? That is exactly what we did with technology. And what are we doing now? We're talking about putting technology in our brains. So <laughs> it, even if we take a while to do it in the more natural way, I think we're going to get there with technology anyway. The same concept. And the the other thing that's funny about that is I always say sci-fi reflects what's going to happen. And there was an episode of the outer limits where everyone was connected and 20 years to, ago. Right. And that, that they were all talking about the, uh, talking about things together in one big cloud that was connected through their brains. So yes. you must've seen the same episode I did. I love that episode. <laughs> oh, not only that, go back and watch the old X-Files. Mm-hmm. You will see things that they're talking about today and that they're actually proving today. So, I mean, and that was almost 30 years ago. You know, that's amazing. I mean, it, well, look at Gene Roddenberry. Gene Roddenberry, uh, he created Star, Star Trek, right? Well, anyway, he also worked for the CIA back in the early 60s. And he was working on some very, very interesting concepts, you know, <laughs> as part of a think tank or whatever. And that just kind of bled into his TV show, you know, the TV show. And now we're seeing things actually become, come to fruition, our communicators, yeah. you know. Sometimes uh, science fact is more bizarre than science fiction. And a, another mm -hmm. example would be, I was watching that spy show that's on Netflix right now. And they were talking about some of the things that people had done to spy. And one of them involved going underwater and creating something underwater that they could use to spy. <laughs> like it, it was very complicated. And, and then there was another conversation about some kind of radio that they were using that they didn't even know how they had it working to spy. <laughs> Like, so some weird stuff, but, but it reminds me of Jung who talked about like a collective consciousness or something. And I'm not very strong on that concept with Jung, but the collective consciousness idea seems to exist in the ideas that we have. And then we act on them sometimes. Right. Well, that's in the natural world. I mean, mm -hmm. we're, we're naturally doing some, certain things. Well, we're a herd type of animal anyway. Right. So, you know, it shouldn't be a total surprise that we come up with similar concepts and, you know, mm -hmm. ways of approaching uh, problems. But right. where it gets where it gets really hairy and uncomfortable 
is the fact that now with nanotechnology, we have the capabilities of injecting the type technology that is needed to make it real and controlled by human beings. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, uh, the, the, the frequencies, we're, we, we're drawn to the frequencies. Well, the frequency of microwave radiation in the 5G or 6G is close to the frequency of the human brain. Mm-hmm. And what that means is all you need is something. And they can now inject things, in theory, right. between the synopsis of the human brain that will act as an antenna and as even a, a little bit of a com, uh, communications device. So, and we know and we know from looking at the FOIAs with, uh, you know, is it um, MK Ultra and the psychotronics mm-hmm. and all that, that they've been looking at this stuff for a long, long, long time about what they can do. And one of yep. the big people that are looking into this is DARPA. If you pay attention to what oh. DARPA is doing, yes, absolutely. nanotechnology, they're injecting the people to kill like yep. cancer and, and different, like whatever the body's having effects with. Right. Um, yep. So if they can do that, they can pretty much do anything with that. Did you guys they, hear about the work that they're doing to control crafts with their mind? Doesn't that mm-hmm. sound familiar? Yes. <laughs> like, that's partly DARPA, but other people have been working on that too. It's been going on for some time. People are trying to figure out how the, um, I guess it's mainly geared towards pilots in the Air Force, but I don't know. But they're trying to figure out how to get pilots to move craft with just their mind. Yeah. No, you're right. That MK Ultra goes back to the early 50s. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it's been around a long, long time. Right. And people don't realize this. You know who Whitey Bulger was? Mm-mm. Whitey Bulger was probably the most murderous of the Irish mafia up in Boston. The guy was an absolute lunatic and he had no compunction about killing. Well, it turns out that for 20 years, he was used as a, a guinea pig testing the use of LSD and MK Ultra and other things when he was a prisoner. So, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Did he become a, a psychopath or was he made into a psychopath? You know, mm-hmm. and if he was, for what purpose? You know, so it, it, this is some interesting things are coming out. It's just like people in uh, that were committed to uh, insane asylums mm-hmm. and orphanages were used by the government as right. guinea pigs to test out a lot of these technologies. I can tell you right now, there, there's one site that was closed down, a major state a mental institution. It was closed down years ago. But in the graveyard, they actually found radiation in the graveyard. Wow. There, you know, there's radiation at Skinwalker. Makes you go, hmm. They, and they said oh, something yeah. They said something about having a state actor influence some things. And we know there's electromagnetic stuff going on there. So you have to wonder, is someone messing with the people at Skinwalker? But that's a whole other thing. But I will say that um, psychoenergetics is another term I recommend people look at. Um, A lot of people go to psychotronics because they've heard of that. But psychoenergetics was another popular one. Um, and I have a couple things on the UFO connector about um, Chinese um, psychics. In addition to, of course, there was concern about 
Russia. Um, and Russia's psychic program may have been some of the catalyst for our own. Um, it's worth also noting that for all those people who are really negative about the remote viewing work, it's it was funded for decades. <laughs> and it's still active. Yeah. There are still so many branches where you can learn how to remote view. Um, yeah. And it's international. So for it's something that people, for people are being... Departments and, and, and police departments that are, you know, paying remote viewers to look into cold cases. I mean, right. still, to this day, I, I, I recently spoke to a couple people that were doing it. Um, and parents did it, you know what I mean? So okay. it's the generations down and they're still employing these people to do that. Yeah, yeah, actually, I, I am really tempted to find a good remote viewer to find someone for a friend of mine. <laughs> I really am. But <laughs> I, I haven't uh, gone very far with that yet. I did speak to one remote viewer recently, but I didn't ask him to do it. <laughs> it was just he was more about out of body and he teaches remote viewing. But he, I need a good remote viewer who wants to help me find somebody. <laughs> uh, OK, Frank, Frank Chili is. Uh... I don't know if you know who Frank, uh, Jesse, I know you Frank, know Frank. Yeah. Uh, Frank Shelley is very, very well connected in that, in that area. Uh, he just had Connie. Oh, what's Connie's last name? Uh, she was just on the Jeff Wren show. And okay. uh, he speaks that highly of her, uh, her skills when it comes to remote viewing. Uh, Russell Targ is yeah. a very, very interesting guy. He headed up. Uh, the remote viewing team for the CIA mm -hmm. uh, for SRI. Yes, uh, his, his group was the one I was talking about when I said going international because I know his work is international now. Yeah, he was on. He was on with um, uh, Jack Sarfati mm -hmm. not too long ago, and the conversation mm -hmm. those two people had was absolutely insane. It was so interesting. And mm -hmm. it was especially here's a guy who's speaking from the first person singular, you mm -hmm. know, leading a team for 15 years doing this. Now, mm -hmm. there are detractors, you know, mm -hmm. as with anything, there are detractors. There are people that say, no, nah, it's nothing. It's, it, it's not real or whatever. But the statistically, you know, they do find that it's a higher probability of success with some of these people that have been trained to do the, the, the science of remote viewing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, interesting, interesting area. I will say the person that I want to have remote viewed may not appreciate it, though, because I think he's in hiding. <laughs> but I just want to know, he, I just want him to, I want to know he's okay. That's all. And his <laughs> name may or may not be Chase Brandon. Okay, anywho, moving on from that. <laughs> um, so I wanted to get to you know, more of your story. We had some interesting side conversations. Of course, we could probably do that for hours, but I want to hear a little bit more about your experiences. Um, so we kind of are going to jump ahead a little bit to your time in the Coast Guard, because like I said, USOs have a little place in my heart. They're just so cool. And I think that's a big <laughs> factor in what's going on with UFOs. I think they're probably most likely a great many of them in our ocean. Yes. No, I, 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 I'm totally on, on board with your thoughts there. When I joined the Coast Guard, 
I joined in 1969. After I got out of boot camp, uh, I ended up in Hawaii. And uh, I was put on a ship within two weeks. I was on the Coast Guard Cutter Mellon. And uh, I pulled my first ocean station patrol, which is halfway between Hawaii and Oahu and Japan. Uh, it's a 10 square mile area in the middle of the ocean. And you sit there, you, you key your location, you're an aid to navigation for ships and aircraft. And we also had a doctor on board for search and rescue and things. Well, anyway, this particular, my, my, first, my first patrol was during the Apollo 11 mission. And of course, Apollo 11, uh, when it landed, it landed a couple hundred miles to the south of where I was. Well, I'm out there in this beautiful Pacific Ocean in July, in July and August of '69, and uh, I was on—I was just—I was on the deck force. I was an E2, and uh, we all had to stand our watches. So I had the ongoing mid watch, and I went up to the bridge along with the other watch standers, and we were doing our turnover, getting the turnover from the offgoing watch. And uh, the same thing was happening with the officer of the deck, uh, the quartermaster of the watch, uh, the four of us. And while we were up there, Combat Information Center squawked the bridge with the intercom. And uh, they said, we have targets closing on the ship and said that they were coming out of the northwest. And <laughs> then they hit us broadside. They said they were clocking them at 3,500 miles per hour, right? So we already knew the, the direction the ship was pointing. We all ran out to the, the starboard bridge wing, which would have been facing to the east. So we're all out there. There were, there were 14 of us on the bridge at the time, and we were all out on the, that one bridge wing. Now, we're just drifting on station, so we weren't underway. And sure enough, on the horizon, we picked up three points of white light on the horizon. Now, the bridge wing was 44 feet above sea level. So if you look at your trigonometry, uh, okay, the higher you get, the further away the horizon is. And then you add the altitude of the objects, and that extends the distance even further. So we're sitting there. We picked them up on the horizon. We had them on radar already, and the objects were flying directly over the ship. They came in a triangular formation, flew directly over the ship, and disappeared off to the southwest. Now, when they got over to the top of the ship, we all ran through the bridge out to the port bridge wing, and we watched them disappear on that horizon. Now, from horizon to horizon, it took about six, seven seconds six or seven seconds. So between that and estimating the altitude of the objects and knowing the speed on radar, we were able to corroborate. Uh, I think uh, the, uh, the officer of the deck calculated the visual speed about 3,200 miles per hour. Radar had them at 3,500 miles per hour. Now, this is also during the height. I mean, the Apollo mission was going off right now same time. So what happens is uh, under directives that have been in place since the 1950s, 
anything that is of a national security concern is supposed to be reported. So the office, uh, the radio officer came up to the bridge and he had a paper in his hand. He went over to the captain who was also on the bridge and had him fill out and sign the report. That was then taken back down to the radio shack and then you never hear anything more about it. Now we yeah. were never debriefed. We should probably should have been debriefed, but we were never debriefed. So I always had that the talk, right? Now, after that happened, we came back and I had to go underway training at Pearl Harbor where we, we trained on all of our shipboard and, and our military mission skills because we were deploying to Vietnam in a couple of months. So after the underway training, we were sent out on a mission. It was really strange. An island was underwater. Okay, French Frigate Shoals, which is the westernmost island in the Hawaiian chain. All of a sudden, it was underwater, and there were 12 Coast Guardsmen and two dogs that were stranded on a concrete bunker, right? So we had to go out and rescue them. We had a helicopter. We took off. But the interesting thing was we were going out into 50-foot seas, and there was no storms. There was no seismic activity. We have no clue what was going on. The sky and everything was beautiful, balmy, you know, uh, South Pacific type weather, except for these gigantic walls of black water. Well, we steamed for two days. We picked the man up, we rested and brought him back, and then we deployed to Vietnam. Now, in May of May of 1970, we were pulling our missions on the rivers and so on. But this one time we were heading back to our main base area of operation, awaiting orders. And the captain said, okay, we're gonna have swim call. So we're anchored about two miles off the coast, right where the South China Sea meets the Gulf of Siam. And we're anchored and uh, being the junior man, junior, the junior quartermaster now, I got stuck with anchor duty along with several other men. So we're up on the we're up on the flying bridge and we're watching everybody swimming off the port side, in the aft third of the ship. They dive off the the main deck, swim over to a raft, climb up a cargo net, and do it all over again. Now, when you're at sea for 57 days, any type of diversion is welcome. So we're sitting up there and we're looking, and the, now the sky was overcast gray. It was probably sometime in May, um, and there was maybe a five-knot wind, and uh, the, the the water was a gray color as well. So you have to picture kind of the overall thing is gray. And with a slight chop, the, the five-knot wind caused a slight chop in the water. So we're looking down from 44 feet, and all of a sudden, under the right under the ship where the men were swimming, this gigantic black object showed up and it was swimming at a perpendicular angle angle off the port side, coming from under the ship and heading off on the port side. Well, we're sitting there and say, gee, that thing is big because we knew how big our ship was. So the estimate of size was easy. The thing was about 35 foot wide at its widest part. It was teardrop shaped and black. 
and there was no fin movement, no fluke movement, nothing to indicate that it was a whale or something of that nature. So we're looking at it, and the whole sighting lasted maybe seven or eight seconds tops. Then it disappeared into the chop and the, you know, the confused gray of everything. And we knew how deep it was because the ship at that po that point, the keel was 17 foot down. So it had to clear the keel. So what we saw was, it was pretty good sized and it was stayed at the same depth. Do we know what it was? No, not at all. But we thought it was a submarine. We figured it was too big to be a whale. So we ran inside and there's a book called Jane's Ships, Ships of the World. And I looked up every submarine that they had in there, especially mini subs. There was absolutely nothing that had that shape. Now I've seen that shape before. Uh, it was a, a artist rendering of flying UFO off of Tasmania that was sighted. And that's how it was described, you know, the, the teardrop shape. But it was actually yeah. flying and had other other things on it. So that was about, number I'm yeah, sorry, go ahead. I've heard about other teardrops from people, people who are witnesses who tell me about their experiences. I've heard yeah, of the I, teardrop. But the interesting thing, there were there were six of us that had actually witnessed this. And then one of the, up on the flying bridge, we had a guy with an M16. He was the shark guard providing shark protection for the swimmers. And up there with him was a guy with one of those little throw, throwaway 35 millimeter cardboard cameras. So he's there, he's trying to take a picture of this thing, right? And uh, I didn't even know it at the time. And I didn't find out about it until the ship's cruise book came out. And in the cruise book, the guy's picture taking, looking down, you could see nothing under the water at all. But what they did, they actually superimposed the shadow type figure of Loch Ness, Loch Ness monster. <laughs> I'm sitting there laughing. I said, well, it wasn't a Loch Ness non monster that we had seen, but we did see something. Anyway, it's in my cruise book, which is like a high school yearbook, really. Right. So, it's worth noting. But sometimes I wonder if the Loch Ness Monster was a Loch Ness Monster. I wonder if it was something else, too. <laughs> yeah. uh, so much we don't know about the sea, uh, the yeah. oceans. Uh, now, that was number two for sightings while on board that ship. The third one happened a couple months later. We were heading back after our deployment. We were heading back to Hawaii. And I was about two days out of Guam. And again, I'm a navigator, so I'm out there on the bridge wing shooting morning stars with the captain, my chief, uh, the officer of the deck. And the four of us were on the starboard bridge wing, the right side of the ship. We're facing, heading back to Hawaii, right, Honolulu. And all of a sudden, beautiful, beautiful South Pacific morning. And you shoot morning stars a half hour before sunrise. You have the horizon, it's like daylight, but you have no sun to, you know, kind of wash everything out. So we're sitting there and we're shooting the, the pinwheel and all of a sudden dead head of the ship was this shiny sphere. It was gigantic, it had to be a hundred foot. And it was like, it was like a drop of mercury. The only way I could describe it is a drop of mercury. It was like a mirror, but it was a perfect sphere. 
and that thing was heading on a reciprocal course or the, the exact opposite course we were on and heading directly at us. So the, everybody put their sextants down. We're all sitting there staring at this thing coming at us. And I said, oh, this is great. This is better than the three that we sent the report in on. This one's got to get a report. And so it comes and it just passes us on the port side. So you lost it in the mast and things like that. But that thing was so close and so shiny, you could see the clouds and the blue of the sky on the top of it. And on the bottom of it, you could see the blue of the ocean and the white caps because we had a slight chop to the water. So it was like a perfect mirror, spherical mirror, right? And I said, oh, this is great. This has got to be the best. I hope somebody has a camera. <laughs> well, nobody had a camera. And the captain, my captain was the senior captain in the Coast Guard. He was a master mariner. That means he could do everything that the old mariners could do without without any electronic equipment at all. He can navigate any place in the world. Anyway, so I figured now the guy was also, he was probably about 60 years old at the time. So he spent his entire life at sea. All he did was look. And when the thing passed us to the port side, he went back to shooting morning stars. This <laughs> one like that. He had, and the reason is he didn't say it, but my guess is that if you spend any time at sea, you you I guarantee you you will see something. At some point in time, you will see something. And after thirty-five or forty years at sea, he had probably seen it all. Yeah, you notice that uh, when people are doing the research, um, trying to find out more about UAPs. They're not getting a lot from the uh, government's ocean research groups, right? There's, there's like a little bit of a hush-hush there. <laughs> there is some information that has come out from them about sounds that they oh, yeah. cannot identify that come from the ocean. They're willing to tell us that, um, but they don't talk too much about what's going on inside the ocean with the UAPs. Yeah. A matter of fact, that the sound you're talking about, they picked it up from the uh, the Mar uh, the uh, Challenger Deep, which mm -hmm. is the Mar uh, Marianas Trench, mm -hmm. which is the deepest part of any of the oceans, 34,000 feet deep. But they're picking up sounds that are quite bizarre and that they could not identify. So, yeah, we don't know anything. We're not too bad at 5,000 feet down. But anything beyond 5,000 feet, we know more about the moon than we do about the ocean. Right, right. And, I mean, that's the perfect place for something like that to hide because, I mean, we only explored 10% oh, yeah. of the oceans. We saw 90% are unexplored. So yeah. it's the perfect place for a civilization that's always been here or is traveling to our planet to yeah. hide. You know what I mean? And that's been a big talk of the UFO, the UFO community lately, um, especially yep. on the West Coast with the Nimitz and the Gimbal and the Go Fast. You're seeing stuff every day out there if you're a pilot or if you're a Navy uh, uh, patrolman um, or radar operator, you know? So um, this is exactly where I think we need to start focusing on because yeah. we've seen a lot of activity out there. I agree with you, Jesse. I agree. Uh, you know, the thing about the Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic coast, I'm going to say from South Carolina all the way up to and including um, at least Long Island, we have more UFO sightings almost on a daily basis 
you know, especially you see a lot of the red spheres and you'll see flights of them. I've seen, I saw one, uh, actually a guy I ran for council with in Long Branch, his son and his son's girlfriend, they were in their front yard and they're about two blocks from the ocean in Long Branch. They got pictures with their cell phones of it was 13 red orbs just off the coast. And that is that is a common that's a relatively common uh, site. Almost every single sighting around nuclear involves one of them, one of the <laughs> red orange spheres. They do have yeah. saucers and stuff too, but there's all like even those initially appear to be a red orange sphere. It's interesting. Yeah. I think that's definitely the reconnaissance group, so to speak. You know, I think they're that's what their job is. Oh, and absolutely. Well, I, uh, I, what I'm going to be speaking about on Friday, my whole thing is just about just about the Navy Road here in Monmouth, uh, Monmouth County. Right. Uh, but the four spheres, 2015, we were at, uh, you know where Keyport is, right? Keyport, New Jersey. Okay, yep. well, it's right on Raritan Bay. It's about eight miles from the Navy Pier. We had four of those suckers fly directly over us. We were eating dinner outside right on the water, and we had four of those things flying in single-file formation directly over us, heading roughly to the west. A lot of lakes in North Jersey and in the, that western part. Uh, so water, and again, I, I think someplace the numbers are about 90% of all UFO sightings are within sight of, of water, bodies of water yeah. or the oceans, within 30 miles of the oceans. Right. And you hear all these stories about UFOs over lakes also, or absorbing water from the lake. Like <laughs> apparently when there's a yep. UFO that was accused of stealing water from a town. Yeah, I don't know what where that was. I, I remember watching that story on a documentary and going, "Oh, that's really interesting." <laughs> they just stole the water, <laughs> but yeah. you know, one thing that I have considered is even um, if they don't go very deep down, at least the water is covering them. They probably don't need to go that deep. And the reason I thought about that was because there's just an excessive amount of pressure, um, and. I just, I guess it, they don't, may not care. They might not have a problem because, you know, when they travel, they have kind of like a little bubble around them. But, but I, I wonder if they even would need to go that deep because they know when we can see them essentially is what I'm getting. Um, you know, some, I don't think they really care one way or the other. Uh, they would care if you got down to their bases and the, if there's a, any compelling reason to go deep, it's that we can't, you know, I mean, we mm -hmm. could spend forever. I mean, it takes forever just to do one small part of the Challenger deep, mm -hmm. right? Now, you can imagine the millions of square miles, especially anything from 16,000 feet to 34,000 feet. That's a lot of places to hide, and you're not going to find them that way. Right. We'll find them with, with other technical means. Well, I, I think that what we see is maybe 50 years behind where where we actually are. So mm -hmm. the technology, I think, exists to be able to do a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, but don't be surprised about that. Uh, I saw a horse, we called it a ho horse blanket. 
Uh, the military uses these organizational charts, gigantic things, and they look mm -hmm. like horse blankets. And they'll mm -hmm. show the organization of a division, a battalion, a brigade, a company, and so on. Well, anyway, one of the aer aerospace companies back in the 1940s did this flow chart of saying, okay, let's say we can go into space and we want to travel to the first, the closest star. What are we going to have to do to get there? So they did it step by step by step by step. We need to be able to develop this. We need that. We need this, that, and the other thing. And they went all the way through and they said, now this is like late 40s. By the time they got to something like 2100, they said, we'll be, uh, we'll, we'll be able to travel to the stars by 2100. Well, <laughs> one of the very interesting people that worked on all these technologies said, we were doing this back in the 1950s. So the technology that they were saying we would need and wouldn't see until 2100 already exists. So now when people say, well, we have a space force. Yeah, well, what does that space force really consist of? Right. <laughs> and we already oh, know that the government is, is, is 20 to 30 ahead of us. Exactly. Hey, and be before there was Space Force, there was Space Command, and people aren't looking at them very carefully yet, despite the fact that you hear stories about people in Space Command yep. hushing UFO stories. Yep. Like they were. I had, an I had an interesting conversation with one of the directors of Bell Labs a couple of years ago, two or three years ago. And really a fascinating fellow. His name is Dr. Robert Lucky. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, I never met him before, and we were speaking. I had to speak at a, an economic summit in Monmouth County, and he was another speaker because he was part of the FEMERPA, which is Fort Monmouth, you know, the BRAC and everything. Uh, he was appointed by the governor to oversee that. Well, anyway, so before we were to speak, I walked up to him, and I said, Dr. Lucky, it's a pleasure to meet you. It's a shame. Nobody will know what came out of Bell Labs. And not meaning anything by it. I meant absolutely nothing by that other than a pleasantry, right? <laughs> anyway, he grabs me by the shoulder. He pulls me back. He looks around. And then he said, they'll never know what came out of the labs. And I, I'm like this. <laughs> what do you mean? Now, I was embarrassed. I was taken by surprise. He does it again. He looks around, mm -hmm. grabs me by the shoulder, <laughs> and says, they'll never know what came out of Bell Labs. And I'm not going to look like a fool twice. So I said, oh, you mean like what you see on the deep internet? And he said, yes. <laughs> True story. Gospel truth. So I do think that one of the triangles that people see is definitely ours for the record. I've, I've commented on that quite a bit. I do not think they're all ours, um, but I think that at least one, because what shape do we make all of our jets into? Adulta. <laughs> so I do think so. I also came up with the whole theory about how you could have a hovering triangle. Um, and so the theory came from watching the helicopter on Mars. I was watching its rotors move so fast that you couldn't see them. And I was thinking, if you have rotors that are the right color, 
moving very fast on the top of the triangle where no one can see them, it's going to look like it hovers. So yeah. I don't know, I'm just saying. Well, the problem is with that is that they make no sound whatsoever. Yeah. They are totally, they are totally silent. Uh, part of the thing here, and I just found this out recently, there are people that live close to the Navy Road in Colts Neck, right? That's where I had my incident, and that's where the whole genesis of my 65-year-old, the 65-year evaluation of, you know, of the situation when this was told to me by a very, very respectable person, they said, yeah, they said they go out and there's something weird about their area. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, we have all types of things. There's, you know, people acting strange, animals acting strange. And this is not in an area that you would expect anything like this, but it's within a mile of the Navy road. And so she, she said, we also see dark triangles hovering directly over our development, right? Now, if this came from anybody else, I would have taken it with a grain of salt and say, that's nice, have a nice day. But she is the most serious science person I know. And it was got so bad in their neighborhood that they moved out and that there was somebody else that was a, uh, a, uni a professor over Princeton. They moved out as well. So the area is rife with something. Now, the thing you mentioned about triangles probably being ours, total agreement with that, because so much is being seen around McGuire Air Force Base. That is a hotbed for, as Jesse, I'm sure you're, sure you're aware. So, you know, is it military? Probably. Uh, the reason it's a triangular shape, yeah, we're used to Delta wing aircraft. <laughs> engineers have a hard time separating themselves from what they know very well. Uh, but the thing is, how much of the technology came from elsewhere? You know? Yeah, that's always the question, because I do believe that the original sightings were, no, they were more like boomerangs. Um, you know, even in Corso's book, I believe he said that the craft that was found at Roswell was not a saucer. It was more like a boomerang. Now, I do think there's a possibility that that boomerang ran into one of those uh, balloons, but I, I don't know that I think it was the one that they claimed it was, but it's possible that that's how that crash happened. But supposedly that there was a boomerang there. Kenneth Arnold saw the boomerang. So you have to wonder if that inspired some of the things. And then they also had um, Alexander Lipich. And Lipich had been working on triangles. Um, and he had some very bizarre things. Do you know who Alexander Lipich is? No, no, not at okay. all. Okay. So he was a part of the Operation Paperclip group that got sent to White Sands. And if you look him up, he created things like the Comet, which was like an extremely fast airline. Right. Right, and he literally made a triangle. So I do wonder if there was a merger of two things that happened. People like Lipich, who came up with bizarre ideas, and then this crash, and then they put the technology and that together and have created some things that they're just not telling us about. And honestly, if you just look at 
things that they did make that we know about now, like the flapjack and the Avro car, there's awfully peculiar things going on. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned paperclip. Uh, Camp Evans is part of Fort Monmouth. Now, Camp Evans, I worked at Fort Monmouth, and I knew absolutely nothing of what was going on at Camp Evans. Camp Evans during World War II was part of, <laughs> yes, okay, you still got your thing. <laughs> well, anyway, Camp Evans was where it was part of the Manhattan Project. It's also where the, uh, the fuse mechanisms for the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were designed. Also, it's where the balloon <laughs> that was blamed for the Roswell crash was also built there. That was part of, uh, uh, there were two types of balloons. You had weather balloons, and you also had the balloons that did the seismic activity, checking on nuclear explosions. Mughal. The Mughal. The Mughal mm -hmm. balloon. I, I couldn't think of it right away, but I thought of it. Mughal. That's yes. the one. But, okay, so here's here's my reason why that, that story is bogus, besides the fact that they changed it three or four times. The <laughs> fact that President Trump said that he was going to, he was considering making the story of Roswell no longer confidential. Why would it have to be that they released information about something they'd already told us? That made me super suspicious because I was on the fence about Roswell until I heard him say that. Because if it had been the mogul weather balloon, why would he have to say he would lift the confidentiality on it? <sighs> okay, so well, I, I just okay, well, okay, declat. De <sighs> there is so much that is classified. There are a billion documents that are, have classification above secret. A lot of the stuff comes from World War II, and there is absolutely no reason that any documents from World War II, other than maybe some political concerns, should ever be classified at this point. I had a friend, he was in military intelligence, and he, he was working out of Fort Halliburton down in Baltimore, which is was spook school. Anyway, he said when they weren't out on one of their missions, they had to go down into a vault and they had to go through all of these World War II documents and declassify them. The declassification process is so onerous and human beings are basically lazy people. He said it was much easier just to stamp the thing classified and throw it back into the vault and let somebody else worry about. So there's a ton of stuff I never knew about what what they were doing. And I had a, I had high classification at Fort Monmouth, but that Camp Evans was like one of the most secret places I ever knew. So secret, I didn't even know how secret it was. Now after the fact, though, you get the stories. We had 56 paperclip scientists, engineers, and physicists that worked there. Uh, the stories about fighting about our first satellite, designing our first satellite, was a fascinating story. The German guys had one idea, and the Ameri the, the generic American guys had another idea. Well, the German guys had a pretty good idea because they had, in the 50s, they had just invented solar cells. They said, well, let's stick solar cells on our first satellite. And a big fight breaks out between the two teams. 
And finally, somebody in upper management said, yeah, let's let's put the solar cells on there. True story. True story. Uh, anyway, I can go on for hours about that. But there's so much we don't know, and we right. may never know, not because it shouldn't be known. It's just people are too lazy to do anything about it. There's a, there are two other factors in addition to that. There's the factor that some of these things were put on um, microfilm, which is degrading over time. So there's some things we're never going to ever see because it's just not going to last. And then also I was told by someone else who um, worked for the military that he had the job of doing the FOIA request and the information that the public is getting is a very light version of, uh, rem how shall I put this? Disclosed information. <laughs> like, so it's a very light version that if it's a really serious classification, we're still not going to see it, which is actually, when you look at what we do have, that's kind of amazing. Well, you, well, you know, the thing is, uh, and this just came out recently. If you want something to never see the light of day, mm -hmm. don't allow the government to hold on to it. The government, yeah. all government agencies are covered by FOIA. Mm -hmm. But if you turn over your documents or your or your top secret materials to a contractor, yes. you can't reach it. Lockheed. You can't reach it. You can't reach it. So they, they learned that back in the 70s. So that's the reason you're not getting much. It's, right. You could blame a few places like Bigelow, Lockheed. We have a oh, few yeah. names in mind. But it's it's worth uh, noting how many people interested in UFOs come out of Lockheed. I really have to wonder about that. Hmm. Like, you know, <laughs> a lot of the people who are whistleblowers or, you know, join TTSA or talk to Tom DeLong. Lockheed. So I don't know. I just kind of, and they're, yeah. of course, they're all over, including, you know, the White Sands area. Well, all of your science and technology contractors, they all have the capability and they will do what the government asks them to do because they right. want more of the, the gravy, gravy type contracts. So, you know, right. uh, the, the, the whistleblowers, what they all have to do, they all have to sign their confidentiality statements just to be employed. And they also have to sign certain other documents that, you know, it's a $10,000 fine or five years in prison. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. so you have to be very careful about, you know, how much you can divulge. You know, you have to know that. Yeah. So. And when you go look at the Lockheed YouTube page, again, the stuff that they're actually telling us is crazy. Like they're telling us this. And it's crazy. You you know, of course, some of it, I think, is calculated. Like when they really had that picture of a saucer that leaked on the Internet, I'm sure that was not an accident, of course. Like, right. why would they put a top secret saucer like object out there unless they wanted a photograph taken of it? So um, but they they have things like the um, that I think it's I'm going to say it wrong. I, I knew the right term for it. The directed energy weapon. Uh, it's the directed okay. energy yeah, weapon. Energy. Yeah. Right. They have that it's sitting power. on their YouTube page. You can go watch them experiment with the directed energy weapons. They mm -hmm. have, they talked about using um, nuclear fusion to power things and how they were going to make it small on their webpage. 
So they're talking yeah. about that openly. And then they're saying, oh, by the way, 80% is still confidential. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> they're doing some stuff. It's, and we already, I think. Well, you know, the Chinese, the Chinese are the first ones that went public with, uh, what was it that they were doing? There's a whole bunch of things that, you know, once once you kind of leak something out or somebody else leaks something out, mm -hmm. it makes it easier for other people to talk about it as well. Um, right. As far as that pulse energy, mm -hmm. I can tell you right now, uh, somebody that I worked with back in the 70s, late 70s, mm -hmm. he was in the Air Force and he was stationed at Wright-Patterson. He was an enlisted mm -hmm. man. He was like a staff sergeant or something. Mm -hmm. But he was nuclear cleared. So he had the badge with all the nuclear uh, you know, capabilities built into it. Along with a buddy, they were walking down uh, the area where all the hangars were, right? Mm -hmm. There is no hangar 18. But all the hangars that you were going down, some of the hangars were used for various things. And this was in 1970 this happened to him. Mm -hmm. He said they walked into a hangar that they thought was a different hangar. And they walked in just as an experiment was taking place. And the experiment was a pulse energy thing. Then they fired it and it burned through a, I guess, a two-inch thick piece of steel wow. in the hangar. And then it continued on and it burned through the, the rear wall of the hangar. And then it burned into a stand of trees outside of the hangar. Well, wow. within an hour, they took all the trees down. Everything was taken down. And he said they were roughly escorted out, even though they had this ultra high clearance, it wasn't cleared for this. So, uh, yeah. and I believe the guy, I believe the guy because my instant, when I came back from Vietnam, I had three sightings under my belt, right? Mm -hmm. Personal sightings. And well, anyway, I got off the ship and they sent me to more training at Pearl Harbor. So I'm living on Pearl Harbor, you know, Ford Island, a Port, a Ford, a Ford Island, for about three months, going to all these different Navy schools, and I made friends with a Navy yeoman, who was the same pay grade as me, but mm -hmm. a different skill. His skill set: he was a computer operator, and this is 1970, and there was a big concrete building on Ford Island, and that's where he worked. Well, one day we were playing tennis because that's all we could afford to do being enlisted men in, in Hawaii. So we were playing tennis after work one day. And I told him about my sightings, the sightings we had on board the ship. All of a sudden he starts laughing at me. I said, oh, here it is, a UFO nut. He's laughing at it because I'm a UFO nut. He said, no, no, no. He said, that's, that's not the reason I'm laughing. He said, I'm laughing because we get thousands of those type reports just from U.S. Navy ships every year. This is 1970, he tells me this. Mm -hmm. It turns out he worked for an organization called FICPAC, Fleet Intelligence Central Pacific. Now, who else was stationed at Pearl Harbor at that time? And he was a lieutenant commander. That was Bobby Ray Inman, who went on to become a deputy uh, director of the CIA and the director of uh, NSA. So, you know, these, these people have had access to information you know, right. for years. And there's a lot of people coming out from different places like the CIA, including mm -hmm. former directors who are saying, yeah, this is going on. 
this is what we know about it. Here's the information. There's people who have that compulsion to be honest. And one of my favorite FOIAs was about someone who was in the NSA who also was interested in UFOs. And he had to explain to the office that he wasn't going to reveal confidential information to the UFO group that he was a part of. I just love that for you. <laughs> like it was just, and because he's like, yeah, yeah, but he, but I will encourage you guys to release things to people is what he basically said. <laughs> Cause oh, he yeah. was like, we should, um, side note, the NSA FOIAs are fascinating. And the creepiest one I ever saw was almost completely redacted except for one line where they said <laughs> something about, and this was the plan. <laughs> <laughs> Like the whole yeah. thing is black except for one line, like according to plan or as yeah. planned. It's like, er, er, er. what did they do? They're actually better off not releasing anything than putting stuff out like that. I know because people can fill in all kinds of things. What's the plan? Like that was my response. What's the plan? <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, let's say that organization again for me, please. I'm going to write that down so I can look them up. <laughs> Which uh, FICPAC? Yes. Fleet Intelligence Central Pacific. It no longer exists in that in that capacity or name, but it goes back to the sixties and seventies. Okay, I'll be looking that up because it's there was amazing. also a FIC, there was a FIC Lant and a FIC Ur. So you had Fleet Intelligence Central Pacific, Fleet Intelligence Central Atlantic, and Fleet Intelligence Central Europe. Yeah, Europe. Uh... You know, having some of the files be a part of Europe was a little sneaky. I noticed that too. When you do FOIA requests, you don't think to add an E, but there are some <laughs> interesting things when you look a little deeper into that. There's so much stuff. Like, that's why I wanted to organize it because it's just floating everywhere. And yeah. it's in interesting how some of it is so hard to find. And then you go to a site in Australia, and there it is, they have it. Right. Or if you go to yeah. Scribd, you find the stuff that people have snuck out. Um, you know, so it's it's unfortunate they made it so difficult. Um, and for people listening, you're not aware, but Jesse popped out and I keep thinking maybe he's going to come back. And I don't know. Um, hold on. He did send me a message. I'm going to tell him to come back so he'll get a chance to say goodbye at the end. <laughs> I thought he would try to come back on his own. Um, okay, so um, <clears throat> you have provided some interesting things for us. And I, I want to go into a little bit of speculation about what you think is going on before we wrap up. Because it's one of those areas where it's just fun to talk about it. Um, it seems like a lot of your research is very much you know, based on evidence, which is what everyone needs to hear. Um, it's not so much about uh, the fluffy details that other people use to sell books, which I don't like the fluffy details. Yeah, I, I'm not selling, I'm not selling anything. So right. I have no, I have no dog in the hunt here. <laughs> right. What I mean is um, when people go into a lot of extra details, I start losing interest because I want, I want to hear what really happened the end, right? Um, and I think that's what we need in the community. But it's fun to speculate and move away from what we call the nuts and bolts sometimes. So what do you think is going on? 
uh, where specifically? <laughs> it's a wide area. I mean, is there something? Okay, an well, area of special interests. Do you think, for instance, I'll, I'll ask you specific questions. Do you think, for instance, that these objects are coexisting with us on this planet? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, do I know who and what they are? No, I have no more clue about that than anybody oh. else. I have no, I have no, you know, magic uh, way of finding out. But I can tell you, based upon what I know from the sciences that exist in the public domain, I'll put it that way. Uh, there's too much that. Uh, probably is not something that we are developed or we have developed ourselves. And that I think, um, I think there are things that are going on way beyond what we do understand. I think more from a geopolitical standpoint, I think uh, if there is, and I'm going to put it, say it this way, if there is an alien intelligence or intelligences that are interacting with us, uh, they're not doing it at the level that you and I at the you know we're we're at the grunt level. It's not at our level, but it's probably being done at an extremely high level. And a lot of the things that we see coming out around the world, the activities, whether it's a war in Ukraine or or something else going on or COVID or whatever, I have a feeling that this is something that is being dictated for whatever reason. But I think it's a control. I think it's all about command and control. Okay, so and you think, mean Swarns, the valet control theory. Yeah, I think we're being moved in a direction that we as individuals may not necessarily want to go, but I think it's well out of our hands. And I think that there may be, it may be out of human hands. I mean, if there is a, an mm -hmm. intelligence beyond the human, uh, it may be out of all of our hands. Right. Uh, so, I, I firmly believe that. I mean, uh, that is uh, about as much as I can say about it. Uh, again, that's gut feeling. It's not it's not scientific knowledge. But mm -hmm. if you step back and look at what's going on, nothing really makes a lot of sense. I mean, we're, we're seeing right. ridiculousness uh, at all levels of government, uh, Republican and Democrat. I mean, I, mean, I say a pox on all the houses because I think that they're not operating in our own our real best interests but it's for right. some other for some other reason uh, right. what is happening i will say that sometimes i hear certain lines of thought related to the phenomenon that i i do get alarmed about um because if you sit down and realistically look at what's going on it's definitely not butterflies and puppy dogs yeah. um, that's right. Uh, it's it's a little bit scary. Um, and I initially, when I was involved, I was like, no, I'm not scared. But now I'm hearing about it and thinking about it deeply. And I'm like, you know, I can't hear um, about these stories that involve children without hearing how they tried to get one of the kids to go with them. And I can't hear about these encounters with abductions without hearing about kind of awful things happening to the human that's being abducted or 
even just like the, the explanation being, well, we need to repopulate another planet. So we decided to take you or your ovaries, you know, <laughs> like, so it's, it's not sounding super positive. And then of course, the fact is, as we said, there's a lot of orange spears flying around our nukes. There's a lot of these objects flying around our ships, a yep. lot of them. So, you know, it, it started to make me go, hmm, you know, it, I don't know if neutral is the right word. It's not, it doesn't seem like a fifth grade science experiment. It feels like we're being heavily scrutinized right now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, Dev, there, there was something that happened a couple of months back. Now, my name is out there on my website and things like that. So I'm not surprised when I get phone calls or emails from people. Well, anyway, I get a phone call. This is back in maybe February. Now, we had our blizzard in January, right? It was a Saturday in January. I can't, can't remember which one. But anyway, I get a phone call a couple weeks later, and it's from a gentleman. He said, I'm calling for somebody else. I said, oh, okay. I said, I'm, I'm really not an investigator. You probably want somebody from, you know, MUFON directly, one of their field investigators like Jesse or you know, Bob Spearing or somebody like that. And he said, no, he said, I, 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 my friend needs somebody to talk to local. I, okay. So uh, he takes my phone number and uh, I get a phone call a couple hours later. And the guy tells me, he said, look, he said, I was, I know you were in the Coast Guard. He said, I was in the Coast Guard too, after me. I mean, he was much younger than me. And he said, but I wanted to report this. And it turns out he lives in Lacey Township. Now, Lacey Township, we have a nuclear power plant that was just shut down two years ago. And Forked River is the uh, the power plant. And he lives about a mile away from it. Now, the blizzard hit New Jersey. The worst snowfall was there in Lacey Township. Well, he's saying it was about five o'clock that Saturday afternoon. The snow is starting to let up, but it's still coming down. He said he was shoveling his neighbor's driveway when he went, when he looked over towards, he described it as an Elks Lodge, which is a couple hundred feet away. And there was a stand of trees about 65 foot high. He said, all of a sudden, he said five of these orange red spheres all converged right at that area. Now, this is about a mile away from the power plant, but it's also a number of miles away from McGuire Air Force Base. And the direction they were coming from was from McGuire and the nuclear power plant. And they were heading out to sea, okay, over the bay and over Long Beach Island. So he's telling me this, and he said, yeah, the tops of the trees, everything was glowing red. I said, gee, that, I said, that, that's a very interesting sighting. I said, but you really have to file a formal citing report on this. I can I can't do it for you. And I can't. I did that for somebody else and nobody picked it up and looked at it. So I said you have to file it. It has to be the first person, this, that, and the other thing. So I said, I'll help you with it. He said, okay. Then I never hear from him again. I tried calling him, couldn't reach him. So there's a lot of people will see things and they contact for whatever reason. I don't know what his rationale was because he didn't follow up on it uh but that happens quite often i find you know? i feel yeah i feel like 
there's a sense of distrust about reporting. And there's, there's another factor. I think that people need to understand why it's valuable to report. And I don't think they're sold on that right now. So maybe, I know Jesse hears about this sometimes from people, but in general, I think people, if they do, they do it because they just want someone else to know, right? They just want to be able to talk about it. But mm -hmm. whether, whether or not the actual reporting is beneficial to them is a different thing. You know, you feel like you should have someone say, oh yeah, that's what happened and help you verify something and validate something. But then what happens next? Yeah. Oh, exactly. I had another guy, same within two or three days, he's, I get a phone call from another guy. Guy's 85 years old. He said, look, he said, I'm getting close to the end and I, I want to share my experience. I said, okay. I, I said the same thing I said to the other guy. I said, you know, you really should open a report on this, get it formally on the mm -hmm. record. Well, anyway, he goes and tells me the story. It was an interesting story, not not phenomenal. It's nothing, you know, it's not going to set the world on fire. Just like my stories won't set the world on fire because, you know, I don't have trace evidence, I, you know, all this. But it was an interesting story, and it weighed on him because when he was a soldier back in 1958, he was stationed at Fort Dix. Mm -hmm. And he said he had this sighting, he and several other men in his barracks, and he said, we don't know what it was. It was a silver disc and it had a bubble, you know, a, a dome on top and a, a rounded dome on the bottom. Mm -hmm. And he said, I just want to get it reported. But I also I'm trying to find out. Apparently there was a radio station at the time that reported it. Well, I don't know. I can't. The, the station's no longer there. He couldn't even identify the station. Mm -hmm. Right. So. Over the years, instead of grabbing the information when it was nice and fresh, you know, where he could have been researched, he waited until the very end. And now right. we have, we really don't have it because he never oh. followed up either. He yeah, well, I, that is kind of a, a benefit. It's like making a journal entry with a date, with a stamp of approval, so to speak, with a number, with a, this is what we checked to make sure that it was a valid case. Um, attached to it. So there, there are benefits in that sense. Um, yep. I, I do know there's, you know, some other things that um, are confusing when it comes to reporting. There's too many um, smaller chapters um, for different states asking people to report to them. And then that information doesn't go anywhere. And in doing the research that I've done, some of those web pages die like yeah. they're just sitting out there at, like they say report here and it says 2002 and the most recent post. So people might try to report and then their report sitting on a dead page. So yeah. it, it's, I think going to MUFON's uh, at least more reliable. MUFON's been around a very, very long time. Yeah. So, but even, but even there, there's, there's a, a there's a problem the problem that I found with my own personal research and personal thing is that if you don't look at the big picture, the threads are all connected. Mm -hmm. But you have to be patient. You have to be willing to look and tie things together that have some type of obvious yeah. uh, linkage. It could be people. It could be the one sighting I had. There was nothing other than the sighting that I had, my family had. and But that happened in 1958. 
1996, I run across a guy who was starting an arts council in Long Branch. And one of the volunteers was an engineer from Fort Monmouth who lived about four miles away from where I lived in 1958. He saw the same object land mm-hmm. in a swampy area behind his house. Right. So, you know, but I would never have known if I wasn't there doing what I was doing. And he wasn't, he's an interesting guy. He was a direct descendant of uh, D.W. Griffith, mm-hmm. the guy that made the first epic motion picture movie, Birth of wow. a Nation. Very, very wow. racist. But, yeah. Anyway, he's a direct descendant. I mean, that's historic. I mean, that that is a historical, and he's a savant when it came to movies, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, so, so, I mean, it's things like that, that, and that's the synchronicity that you'll find that these events that stand alone, there is probably a synchronicity if you, if you, if you prospect for it. I find that a lot with the blue part. So it's so weird. Like I go into some pretty deep meditations and now I actually don't even know if meditation's the right word or if they're something else. I talked to um, Grant Cameron and a few other people who have done this. And I'm, I wonder, could it be that there are more like trances or something or maybe remote viewing? But anywho, I go into that and then I discover things within those. I come out and I research them and find out a lot of other people have discovered the same thing. Um, and again, it makes me think of that collective consciousness. Um, so for instance, the, the silver cord you know, I found that in meditation and that's a big thing, apparently a huge thing. And then uh, the source calling God, the source found that in meditation came out big thing. Everyone says it. Apparently I'm late to the game. Um, and I was like, late than never. <laughs> right. I know. Um, so, and then of course now one of the things that um, I think about is how to um, basically control a UAP, which is, you know, with consciousness. Um, and also that they are not strictly machines, um, that they have a biological element. And I found that in meditation. And then I went and I read some, um, already six killer Clark, and she met people who went up to these objects and touched them. And it was more like skin, you know, on the object than metal. And, you know, there's just, and then there's explanations from entities that these are not machines per se, they're biological. So I will be talking to more people in the future about that aspect, because that's an, that's a discussion that we need to have, that these are not strictly typical machines, but, but yeah, there's a lot of things, a lot of synchronicities. And I, I almost don't, I swear, sometimes I feel like uh, there's pressure to go meditate. Like I'm not picking up a phone call I'm supposed to be getting and it's a weird <laughs> feeling. And I'm like, no, not right now. I'm busy. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm trying, I'm trying to, I have a new job right now. I'm trying to get used to it. But so there's just a, yeah, a lot of things. And then um, slowly, but surely my conclusions so far are that all of the hypotheses have an element of truth. Yeah, um, just to confuse us. <laughs> yeah, there's an element of truth in all of them, including the fact that there's a connection to the other paranormal. And that's why I had to add other paranormal to my website, because there's a connection. So, Jesse, are you there? Like, are you there there? Yeah, I'm here. 
I'm just wondering because you were so quiet. I'm like, is his mic not working? Yeah, well, I got kicked off the computer and my screen went blue for the first time ever and said someone was trying to hack into my computer and it shut down to protect the data on my on my system. So it completely shut down and had to restart. And I've never had that screen pop up before. And it was just like right at the point when we're talking about DARPA and, you know, all this weird government stuff. And it was just super weird. I've never seen that screen before in my entire life. Um, and now I'm back. <laughs> that's so comforting, Jesse. Thank you. That's just that's the second yeah, time I've shivered tonight. <laughs> yeah. So I, I wanted to comment why I shivered earlier, and it's kind of funny. Um, since I was little, I have a fear of what I cannot see inside the ocean. A very specific phobia. I think it's called thesalophobia. You may have heard of it before. Um, I'm not afraid. Yeah, what, of, yeah. You don't want to go in the ocean because you don't know what's under the water. Exactly. And I just wonder if there's, if all of our phobias have to do with survival, ultimately, like people are afraid of the things that will kill you. And I wonder why do we have that fear? Because granted, you know, not all humans would have been able to swim. I'm actually extremely good at swimming. But if I go into dark water and I can't see what's underneath me, even two feet, I start to panic. So I have to wonder what is under the water <laughs> that is getting me that scared. Like I, I saw Jaws. I know. I know Jaws is not that realistic. I know sharks are not likely to get me when I go into the water. So you have to wonder where is that innate DNA drive to stay out of the water that some of us have especially when you have the seawater flowing through your veins yes <laughs> we yes, all came from we all came from this sea i know but i just i wonder like am i is some part of me telling me there's something there that we aren't seeing that maybe we should stay away from i have to wonder seriously this is a thought i have <laughs> <laughs> well, if you ever saw that old terrible movie, Creature from the Dark Lagoon, oh uh, yeah, <laughs> I haven't, I haven't seen it. That's I haven't crazy. seen it, but I've heard. I did see Abyss. Oh, the Abyss! That was a great movie. Yes, that was a yeah. that was a great movie. Matter of fact, I really think that if we do have the others, that you know they probably do kind of live like that, like the. Uh, the aliens did in that movie. Yeah, I also liked Cocoon when I was younger. If you guys remember, the ocean and the water helped revive creatures when they got yeah. taken back into it. It was in, in, like they had to be put, I think, in a pool for a while. So yeah. interesting, right? I th and then there's, of course, the legends of mermaids. Hmm. Yep, hey, yeah. Did you see this? There's a lot of videos of mermaids now. That seems to be the rage. I mean, most of it's probably CGI. But every once in a while, there's something that said, gee, you know, that really does look real. Supposedly, they found a mermaid washed ashore in South Africa. Well, they, they were teasing it. It was an obvious pain. Oh, <laughs> poor being, thing. Yeah, it was being harassed. Oh, that's a terrible thing. Like, I can't even imagine. Like, that's that worries me. Like, you know, honestly, if I were in charge 
of an ultra terrestrial species, I would tell them to be careful with humans too. <laughs> I literally ponder how can they safely engage with us? And by the way, I did come up with an answer for that. If you like, I can share. What it. is it? Yes, absolutely. Make children. Because what do humans protect? Children. Uh, wait a minute. Ooh, wait a minute. We're having a major debate right now that may or may not be accurate. <laughs> well, okay. Not all children. But, <laughs> but for the most part, humanity has an instinctive drive to protect children. And they have an endearment towards babies and small beings like dogs with big eyes and kitty cats, right? So uh, if you if you were a species that could not communicate because your vocal cords would not allow it, you don't have them, and you needed to communicate and have messengers, and you needed ones that wouldn't get likely shot at, wouldn't you make children? Good point. The problem is the population. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think all the children that they're making are for our planet, but it is a thought that I have had. So yeah. I actually want to ask the person um, that did the seeding about her um, experiences and see what she thinks about this theory, which by the way, I meditated on and I have decided that those are some scary children. Are we talking about the black eyed? Um, the hybrid, yes. They are, they have the urges of humans without the uh, understanding that they are, um, how do I put this? Ethical underpinnings? Yeah, there's that. And then there's also um, the neediness is really strong. Like really, really strong. Because they don't have the urges uh, satisfied. So the neediness is dangerous. Like vampires. Yeah. Well, so, emotional vampires yes so that is why i initially was like oh i want to help the kids and then i like meditated on it and then i'm like oh my god those are some scary kids <laughs> those are maybe not kids i should try to help okay but anywho, i am i'm thanking you so much for coming and chatting you have so much to talk about and so much to share i really enjoyed talking to you um, i enjoyed talking with you and jesse as well I hope that we'll get to talk again in the future. Um, I, I truly appreciate everything. Um, Jesse, do you want to let people know where we can find you first while we wrap up? Yeah, sure. Um, you can check out my podcast every Thursday called UFO Encounters Worldwide. It's on all podcast platforms and KGRA Digital Broadcasting. Um, and I also have the website, which is ufoencountersworldwide.wordpress.com. And, and Jesse, also one more thing. Can, you didn't quite get to chime in. Can you give us just really quickly why you think people should report to move on? This is something I've been advocating for probably the past two months uh, pretty heavily um, because of the fact that if you don't report your case, most people will even have, you know, just a regular CE1 close encounter the first time where they're having a regular sighting and they think, well, if I report this, it's not really going to make a big difference, but it really, in the long term, it does make a big difference because somebody else in a different part of your city might have had the same encounter and might have some physical stuff. And then your encounter can cross-examine with that one and really give some good evidence to an overall case. 
Um, so I tell everybody, even if you don't think your case is important, please report the case um, because you never know who else is looking at the same object at the time you were. Um, and it really just does help the research um, in the long term. Right. And I will I will also chime in that um, I looked at my state's MUFON statistics for April and it just made me feel better. <laughs> like, like, cause, cause I was like, my state gets nothing. And then I looked and I'm like, okay, we got some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what state? Maryland. Oh, Maryland. Okay. Yeah, Great. You should be coming to the Philadelphia conference this Friday. Deb. I know. I know. I just, I have no money for conferences right now, Jesse. I have no money. I shouldn't, I, I literally have to go to eBay if I buy a UFO book and try to find a used copy now. <laughs> like I'm just, it's, it's cause I, I partly, cause I'm saving the, probably the cheapest conference that you'll ever be able to go to and get as much as you'll get out of it. I, I mean, know, but it, obviously I'm serious. It is the, the bottom line that you pay and you get so much information from this conference every year. And it's a two day event on top of that. Right. It's a great thing. You should at least come try to come next year at least. Maybe, yeah. If I if I get more financially stable, I'm going to Disney with my kids soon. And that's kind of why I'm broke, to be uh, honest. That's the, oh my <laughs> god, you could buy a, you could buy a car instead of going to Disney, guys. <sighs> what you know what they're charging there that, that is that is atrocious. Right. I mean, when we took our daughter there, I mean, but that was like early nineties. And even then, it was a little on the expensive. We thought it was a little on the expensive side, but it's outrageous now. Absolutely, yeah. it's that literally really yeah. It's like a once in a lifetime thing because for it's a special birthday. So, um, yeah. Well, my, are you having your New Jersey conference again this year? Oh, the, the, Jesse, you know it's funny. I'm sitting here trying to decide. We're uh, in the process of considering moving to Pennsylvania. Really? Yeah, yeah. Now, the, the thing is, I, I mean, I, I volunteer there at the uh, Evans site and also the Nike site out at right. Port Hancock, as well as now I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm like a relic at the uh, Vietnam Museum, uh, <laughs> State Museum. <laughs> There's not a lot of Coast Guard that ended up in Vietnam. Right. So they got me and then they treat me like an exhibit. <laughs> wow. I will say, though, um, going back to my beautiful state, that even though we do not necessarily have extremely high numbers, <sighs> we do have a lot of people from my state who are a big part of this movement. There was even a huge organization that connected itself to NIDS and put off and all of those, the fund, you guys heard about the fund, the UFO research fund. Anywho, that was Maryland. And then, so <laughs> right. There were some, they have Fort Belvoir kind of stuff happening. Like people connect yeah, yeah. To, like Fort Meade stuff happening. Like I think Fort Belvoir is. You got, Aberdeen, you got Aberdeen. Right. I think, I think Fort Belvoir is Virginia, but it's close. So I'm going to yeah, count. It's also part of CECOM. I had, a, I did a lot of work with. Right. A lot of work down there. Right. So I'm just saying like, when you read, when you read about, um, UFOs, Maryland does come up. Yeah. Well, who is, who, who's your director? 
Oh, I don't. I honestly, I'm not. Uh, Jesse might know better than I am because I, when I looked at the page today, uh, Jesse was in that. He was in it. Oh, <laughs> he okay. had posted in it. <laughs> well, no, a buddy of mine from high school, uh, he graduated two years ahead of me. Uh, he's the uh, director. He took over for um, in Delaware okay. a couple of years ago. Yeah, you know, Bill, uh, Bill Weber. Bill Weber. Yes, I know that name. Yeah. Well, I will be more involved at some point. I'm just trying to find the right balance between interviews, the web page, work, children. Well, you should just start the MUFON after <laughs> over there and just start having monthly meetings. Well, yeah. yeah. Find a library. Start out with a library. Oh, God. I don't want to even talk about how few books I found when I went to a library recently. I was pretty upset. But I will say at least the books, <laughs> the bad. books, I was very happy. And I actually put out that people should donate UFO books to libraries if they want to help with this. Um, but I was happy that the books were in a serious part of the library, which is different from when I was a kid. And those yeah. books were in a like the, the fiction um, section, but now they're in the technology section or the science section. Do you know where my yeah. podcast is? You know what it's ranked in? It's ranked in yeah. science fiction. Yeah, yeah, I remember you saying that. So, anyway, or progress. Paranormal. They have it lumped in with paranormal. Well, they, yeah, they, they call it indie science fiction. That's the new term. So, well, I don't know how yeah. that's possible because they're all real guests that I have on my show. So. I don't know. I guess they're all fake. Well, if it podcasting, if it if it makes you feel any better, cell phones were science fiction on Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, I I guess I kind of got derailed again and made this a really long interview. I apologize to everyone, <laughs> but I just had so much I wanted to talk about today. So, um, and thank you for I telling us where to. I'm sorry. What was that? I said I enjoyed it. Okay, okay. I'm glad that the long, long length didn't bother you. So, Jesse, thank you again for telling us where we can find you. And now, of course, it's your turn. Joe, please tell us where we can find you. Um, uh, you can find me on my, uh, I have a website and I have to update it. Uh, it's uh, millenniumoss.com. You go out there, uh, you'll find UFO-related uh, things. Most of the things are, you know, uh, either my experiences or some of the people that I had, the raw data from uh, interviews and talks that I've had with various people. So go out there. You're welcome to use it. Comment if you like. And uh, I'll see you sometime. Right. And I definitely have that also linked in the description already because I did some research and I may be using some of those interviews for the nuts and bolts section of the UFO connector because some of it really was very interesting. If you guys want to go take a look, there is a YouTube channel with those interviews. Can you tell people the name of your YouTube channel? <laughs> uh, I go out there sparingly. I'm, uh, it's, uh, it hasn't been my primary uh, interest. I, can, I will send you an, an email with that information. How is that? Well, I have it linked in the because I think I changed the I think I changed the channel once or twice. So, okay. Well, I I have a link in the description <laughs> for that too. But I enjoyed it. The one that I looked at, I think things were up to at least 
four months ago. So yeah, I mean, there, there was a couple of gaps. I, I took a hiatus too. Right, right. So I, 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 I thought that was probably recent. And by the way, Jesse helped me get that channel. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I want to say thank you again, and I'm going to say goodbye to our listeners also. So thank you to everyone who listened, especially if they made it this far, because this is probably the longest interview that I've done, but it was quite enjoyable. Um, Again, this is Deb from Calling All Beings Podcast Network. This is Deb's Data Dojo. And if you want to reach me, I'm at Study of UAPs. You can find me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, ufoconnector.com, all over the place. And thank you for listening. Take care, everybody. Good night, everyone. Good night.